Welcome to the Choose You Now podcast. I'm Juliana Hever, your host. Today, I'm so excited to introduce my guest, Moby. He's been making music since he was nine years old. He grew up playing classical music, but after college became a fixture in the late 80s New York house and hip hop scenes. He released his first single, Go, in 1991, listed as one of Rolling Stone's best records of all time, and has been making albums ever since. His own records have sold over 20 million copies worldwide, and he's also produced and remixed scores of other artists. Moby works closely with a variety of different charities, including the Humane Society, Mercy for Animals, and the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And in 2007, he launched Moby Gratis, which provides free music for independent filmmakers. Moby and I sit down to discuss his journey of when he decided to choose himself. Thank you so much for being here, Moby. Hi. Hi. I just finished your amazing memoir that everyone should read called Then It Fell Apart. And, you know, I've known you for years just from the animal rights movement and kind of watching what you've done over there. But you are such a source of inspiration. And this whole podcast is about choosing you now and like, those moments in life when you had the aha moments and epiphanies and your memoir is just full of them. So I wanted to start with, you know, asking you, you had recently tweeted uh, one of your favorite quotes from Victor Hugo, that music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. And you've grown up in this music world. So tell us a little bit about what it was like and what music means to you. Well, it's interesting um, because, I mean, I've been obsessed with music since I was really, really young. Uh, one of my first memories that I think I write about in the book was being in a car with my mom in Danbury, Connecticut. And it was probably the winter of 1968. And we were living, or maybe 69, 68. We were living in this weird rundown apartment at the top of an old Victorian building. And... Proud Mary by Credence Clearwater Revival came on the car radio, you know, the crummy little AM radio. And I was transfixed. Like I still remember just being in the car and I wouldn't leave the car until the song had ended. And keep in mind, it was like 34 degrees and sleeting and the car didn't have heat. So my poor mom is there trying to get me out of the car. And I was just like adamant that I wouldn't leave the car until this song had ended. And so all my life, I'd been obsessed with music, but I never really thought about why. You know, it's sort of like when you love something profoundly and unconditionally, you just assume that you're having a natural, rational reaction to something. Like everybody loves chocolate cake. Very few people try to sort of understand, you know, what it is, why, you know, what in their psyche compels them to love chocolate cake. Uh, so with music, it was, you know, so I sort of dedicated my life to music. I went to college to study philosophy, but ended up dropping out and just kept working on music and working on music, even though it never really felt like work because I loved it so much. And then, and also I apologize for rambling on, but, and then in about 2003, uh, I met Dr. Oliver Sacks and a woman named Dr. Connie Tomeno, who ran and continued, well, she continues to run this organization called the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function. And they looked at how 
music actually affects the brain and how it affects our endocrine system and how it promotes neurogenesis and how it's not just like fun and lighthearted, like it's a profound and profoundly effective healing modality. And that was really interesting for me because up until that point, I just thought music was this thing that I loved, but I'd never seen it as seriously as, you know, like other maybe like philosophical or scientific disciplines. Um, so it's really nice knowing that what I've dedicated my life to isn't just superfluous and frivolous. No. And I think you inspire so many people with your music. Like there is philosophy. There's so much art within how you, all of your music, the way ugh, it's beautiful. And it, it's probably having these incredibly profound impacts on obviously so many people. So it's beautiful that you were drawn to it. And so and what do you think you've learned from that? Like when you think about it from a scientific perspective, does that change it for you or? Well, one of the most fascinating things about music, and I know this might sound odd, but it's literally very, and literally in the literal sense of the word, it's true, is that music technically has never existed. And what I mean by that is for example, if you're a sculptor, you take your medium and you mold it into whatever form you want it to be. Like you can, you could take a sculpture and you can throw it off a roof. You can, you know, you can tap on it and it makes a sound. Music, by definition, it's just air molecules moving a little bit differently. So no one has ever, te literally, technically, no one's ever made music. All we've ever done as musicians is you know, slightly modify and push around the air molecules that are already there. And that just amazes me because if you think about it, music, you know, can make people cry and dance and jump up and down in the middle of a stadium. It can make people like get tattoos and move across <laughs> country. But all it is, is air moving a little bit differently. You know, like if a space alien came down and they looked at the difference between a jackhammer and a cello, they would say, but it's the same thing. Like both of those things are just pushing air molecules. And it's so funny that like a jackhammer makes us cringe and a cello makes us cry. That's uh, so profound. And yet it's so powerful. I love that. I haven't thought about it like that. It's like you can't bottle it exactly, but it exists and is changing everything in the world. Well, it's funny because people think of music as having corporeal form because of vinyl, because of CDs, because of cassettes, because of eight tracks. Um, but those are just pieces of plastic that held music, you know, that were encoded with music. And um, in a way now, it's almost easier to convince people that music has never had corporeal form because no one very few people actually buy or own physical plastic music delivery devices. Right. Especially now where we literally just click a button. <laughs> yeah. And music flows wherever you are. Mm -hmm. So what I love about your memoir is that you go back and forth between your childhood and your adulthood and like from you growing up and all of the challenges you had growing up and then all the challenges you had, you know, once you were in your mode with fame and traveling the world and 
everything you had wanted and were chasing. And you go back and forth. And it's really interesting to kind of pick out like the connections. And, you know, like I said, this is about choosing yourself. And it seems like you've had several of those major transformative times in your life that I would love for you to share if you're open to um, finding when you decided to go vegetarian because you put to, put it together with animals and your your cats your cats at home and your friends that had gone vegetarian and that's a big profound moment for you would would you agree or can you explain a little bit about that experience for you Oh yeah I mean I see that as being what I mean I sometimes I call it my Saul on the road to Damascus moment where like everything changes in an instant. Um, and what happened was, uh, and I imagine maybe you or people listening have maybe had similar experiences where when I was growing up, I had the same sort of core paradox that our culture has that, you know, that, literally billions of people have around animals, which was, you know, when I was growing up in New York City and Connecticut, I loved animals unconditionally. You know, I loved animals more than I loved humans, but I also loved going to Burger King. And it never struck me as being inconsistent or paradoxical, you know, that I would, you know, obsessively love the rescue animals we had, you know, even when they were behaving badly, I still loved them, but I also loved pepperoni pizza and I loved McDonald's. And then when I was 19 years old, I was petting one of our rescues, whose name was Tucker. And all of a sudden I realized, and I, I've, I've said this before, so I hope anyone listening doesn't think I'm just repeating myself because I am, but nonetheless, I don't know how else to say it, was <laughs> I was petting Tucker and I suddenly realized like, oh, Tucker is this sentient being, you know, this two-year-old cat or three-year-old cat who has a rich emotional life and a central nervous system, two eyes, a profound desire to just be happy and avoid pain and suffering. And in that instant, I realized that every animal with two eyes and a central nervous system has a profound desire to be happy and avoid pain and suffering. And that's, that was 1984. And so I became a vegetarian in 84 and then eventually became a vegan in 1987. So I guess it's been now 33 years that I've been a vegan. Wow. And you have a delicious restaurant in LA. Well, sort of. I don't really, I don't really own it anymore. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, I'm involved as a, I guess, like advisor, founder, but because I've owned a couple of restaurants and there's nothing like owning a restaurant to make you realize, especially me, that I have no business owning a restaurant. <laughs> it's a you rough know? business. And especially like the people who like uh, restaurants should be owned by people who know how to own a restaurant. And I like, I know how to, you know, make the restaurant look pretty. I know how to help guide the aesthetics and what the food should be, but I don't know a single thing about the nuts and bolts of running a restaurant. And so as a result, you know, last year, uh, I found some people who really actually do know how to run restaurants. And I sort of handed the keys to Little Pine to them because I just, I kept coming up against 
my inadequacies as a restaurant owner. Well, you're not alone. That's a rough, rough, rough industry, but it's a great restaurant. I haven't been there in a while, but I loved it. But congratulations on that. Um, So what do you think? You know, we talk to all kinds of people on this podcast and they all have their own reasons for choosing themselves. So what have you learned personally in that moment, that profound moment about changing yourself, like when you went vegetarian? I mean, there's so many, there's so many instances similar to that that I've had in my life. Uh, and I'm and I'm trying to think what is like the common thread. Like I really want to say something helpful and insightful. Um or at least try to be helpful and try to be insightful. Uh, can you give me some examples of what other people have said? Because that might spark something. Because it's such a it's such a great question and it's such a, but it's such a giant question that I sort of want to, you know, try to rise to the occasion and say something <laughs> worthy of the question. Well, I mean, you kind of have a lot of it throughout your book and throughout and your music and everything like that. And it is, it is a big question. But why do you think, how about this? Why do you think that people are almost afraid to choose themselves? I think you had that moment in your last chapter. Yeah, what's, what's fascinating, and really this is the thing that is destroying our species and destroying the other creatures on the planet and destroying the only home we have is that individually and collectively, we all make choices that ostensibly are supposed to serve us and end up destroying us. Like that's the most baffling aspect of humanity. Cause as humans, like we are all self-interested, you know, even I'm assuming the enlightened ones among us are still pretty self-interested. Like if you throw a rock at their head, they're probably going to get out of the way. But it's the fact that so much of what we do is so self-destructive. And there's the obvious ones of like drug addiction, smoking cigarettes, shooting each other with guns, burning down the rainforests. But even the more passive ones of like choosing thoughts that are self-defeating and self-destructive, choosing staying in relationships that are self-defeating and self-destructive. So it's just so odd And I wonder what it says about our sort of neurochemistry and our neural architecture that we, as a species who should be looking out for ourselves, we should be choosing ourselves, are kind of committing individual and collective suicide with almost all of our choices. And what's especially baffling is you could say that in the past, people didn't know better. You know, like when my mom in the fifties was smoking cigarettes. That's because her doctor told her it was okay. You know, when, when people in the 19th century were, you know, like using mercury for everything or, you know, who knows what they were, you know, like burning coal indoors, they didn't know better, but now we know better. Like we know that we should use sustainable energy. We know that we shouldn't use animals for food. We know that we shouldn't, you know, rely on prescription medication if we don't have to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But we keep making these self-destructive choices and it's, it's horrifying and mind boggling. And I feel like if there's, if there's one thing I can aspire, well, there are two things I'd like to do with my life. One is to try and get humans to stop using animals for human purposes. But the other would be to 
try to get humans to stop making these egregiously self-destructive, you know, self-defeating choices. Right. I think there's this self-protective mechanism where you don't even want to see it. You just you you just don't see it because it's not serving the moment or you just don't even want to believe that you could be in an abusive relationship or you don't want to believe that eating animals is really like you, you just kind of disconnect. I think it's like a, it's a protective mechanism that I think our psyches do deep, deep down that we can't see it until, you know, I've gotten out of really abusive relationships and I didn't see it until I was out of it. You're out of them, and you and you look backwards, and it's like mind blowing because you're like, well, how could I not see that? You know, I'm an intelligent, I'm aware. So I think there's this like this intentive um, ignorance, like like see no evil. You know, the the monkeys show, closing their ears and their eyes, and they're just not mm -hmm. wanting to see it and feel it. But it is. It's it's quite extraordinary. So what have you learned from choosing yourself, and what could you say to those? that you want to inspire to make those better choices? I think a couple of things. One is the, a strange paradox. I remember reading an interview years ago. This is before I got sober, when I was just like, you know, a, a really dim-witted, selfish, hedonistic, drug-addicted, alcoholic, selfish idiot. And I read a quote I forget who it was, maybe Thich Nhat Hanh, some, some Buddhist thinker, Jack Kornfeld, who, one, of, one of the biggies. And they said that like the key to happiness is service and selflessness. Mm. And when I read that, I hated that idea. Because deep down, <laughs> I kind of knew that they were right. But I was so annoyed because I was like, no, no, the key to happiness is selfishness and hedonism. And I was mad at that quote, but then I got sober, time passed, and I don't know what happened, but I did find that like having an ethos of selflessness and prioritizing service to something bigger than me is where happiness and well-being comes from, which again, it's sort of a paradox uh, because you would think that, you know, selfishness should be the way to find happiness, but as a lot of wise people have told me, actually service is the key to happiness and selflessness is the key to happiness insofar as we can, is that any human being can be selfless. Um, I have yet to meet that person. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is when I look at the mistakes that other people make, I've made all of those mistakes, but probably a hundred times worse. You know, so... I have to remind myself when I see other people making mistakes, I certainly can't judge them because almost any terrible thing anyone is doing or has done, I've probably done that, but so much worse because it's too easy to feel smug and superior. Well, at least I, it's too easy for me to try and find comfort in feeling smug and superior. And then I have to remember like, oh, all the terrible things I've done basically inherently prevent me from in any way feeling smug or superior. <laughs> it's like a humbling, a humblingness that you've gone through. Today, I'm so excited to tell you about this awesome company called Organifi. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients. 
What I especially love about Organifi is just how in alignment they are with the concept of Choose You Now. Their mission is to unite the world through health and happiness by providing access to high quality nutrition, education, and community. Choosing You Now begins with how you nourish and feed yourself. You are quite literally what you eat. One of the most intimate relationships you have with the outside world is through your sustenance. You take in food every day, well, usually multiple times a day, and that food gets broken down and transformed by our bodies. It evolves and morphs and it turns into our future us. And diet, of course, is the number one most powerful influence on our health. And you get to choose you now in each and every bite, again and again and again. I also love that Organifi includes some of my favorite ingredients, including leafy green goodness, mushrooms, anti-inflammatory herbs such as turmeric and ginger, fruits, tea, and so much more. Visit Organifi.com slash choose you. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash C-H-O-O-S-E-Y-O-U. And use the code choose you as a discount code at checkout and save 20% off your order. So what happened after you, when you went sober, like that's a major life. I mean, for you, your story is just extraordinary. So what was it, what's it been like since then? It's been interesting because I thought that alcohol and drugs, when I first really indulged in alcohol and drugs, I thought I had found the, the key to happiness, the key, like, you know, I think it's, there's a, and I feel like a complete narcissist for quoting myself. It's either in, (laughs) it's either in the first memoir that I wrote called Porcelain, or then it fell apart. And I say something and I, I hope maybe someone realized I was trying to be funny as I basically said that all I needed for the universe to give me was the unconditional love of every person on the planet and unending fame and drunkenness and drugs. So Mm. the joke being, of course, that's nonsensical and absurd, but I really did think that like, as long as I could just be a promiscuous, drunk, drug addict, musician constantly on tour i thought oh this is this is how i'm gonna be happy and in a way not to anthropomorphize the universe but i feel like the universe had to stage an intervention and had to say no you know like you might think that being a selfish drunk drug addicted idiot is the key to happiness but there's more like this is not this is not your path this is and so you know, in order to get sober, you have to bottom out. Like no one, I, I, I truly don't believe no, you know, like no addict can truly commit to sobriety until they have truly bottomed out. And luckily for me, I truly bottomed out from about 2004 to about 2008 when I got sober. And then what? And so what was the big revelation? What was the I mean, that's the choose your moment. Like you choose your, you, you chose to like face it. Cause you, you were like, no, I'm, what'd you call yourself? I am not an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic aficionado or alcohol and, enthusiast. Yeah, I, I thought I was an alcohol <laughs> enthusiast. Right. Right. So like for you to go there and to make that decision and to hit bottom, um, what happened after that? At, what did you realize in retrospect, looking back at those thoughts that you had for years well, and how hard. do you see them now? And it ties into what we were saying about abusive relationships is even if something is 
terrible, we will tend to hold on to it if it's familiar. You know, it becomes almost like the scaffolding for who we are. And over time, we just sort of ignore the evidence. Like I ignored for years the evidence that I was, you know, depressed and sick and suicidal and like anxious. I was just kept ignoring it because these things were familiar and getting drunk every day and doing lots of drugs. These things were familiar And then at some point, I just slowly, like the mountain of evidence was so overwhelming that I was like, oh, this isn't working, you know, and it's so hard. Giving up the familiar is one of the most, the most difficult, challenging things that any human being can do. And I think we have to have a lot of compassion for people who stay in unhealthy situations because it's, it's familiar, you know, and the idea of leaving it is even if you don't know it, the idea of leaving it is scary because when you leave something terrible, whether it's addiction or a bad relationship or a bad job or a bad home situation, you're replacing the familiar with the unknown. And the unknown can be alluring, but it's scary because it's, it's unknown. terrifying, right? Yeah. So, so then when I got sober for real in 2008, it was really challenging, which is why so many people relapse because, mm-hmm. you know, I had given up the familiar with, you know, rather than be out drinking and doing drugs and, you know, trying to sleep with as many people as I could. Suddenly I was like eating cereal and watching the daily show and going to sleep at 10 30 at night. And at first that felt so sad but as time passed, I realized, oh, this is this is healthy. This is normal. This is sustainable. And also what I realized is that alcohol addiction, drug addiction, any sort of like compulsive, unhealthy lifestyle is limited. Like it never expands, whereas sobriety expands. Like it, it sobriety gives me the the room to hopefully evolve and to grow and to learn really new things and be exposed to new things and to change over time. And selfishness and addiction never provided that. Wow. That's beautiful. So, and I'm so happy for you and it's inspiring to so many people. How about like what happens when you're faced with the actual anxieties and panic and depression that you were pushing down, did that, did you have to deal with it or did it go away because was it basically the problem was the drugs and alcohol or was it something that you had to face head on without anything to numb from it? Oh yeah. I mean, alcohol and drugs, they, they are the problem, but blaming alcohol and drugs is kind of like blaming the Titanic, you know? Meaning the iceberg, I'm trying to figure out where's my analogy. I know it's my analogy is falling apart. (laughs) Basically, (laughs) you have the Titanic and the iceberg. And it's absurd to just focus on one of them. You know, Mm -hmm. so I, you know, a lot of people, when you get sober, you think that the problem is your drinking, is your addiction, is your, you know, drug addiction. But then once you remove the alcohol and the drugs, you're left with yourself. And you're left with the underlying reasons 
why you became an alcoholic or drug 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 addict in the first place. Right. And it and it involves so much. It involves therapy. It involves meditation. It involves introspection. It involves cognitive behavioral therapy to basically reacquaint yourself with who you are in a non-distorted way, you know, in a non, either both non-self-aggrandizing and also non-self-defeating, like to just really try and encounter yourself as honestly and compassionately as, as who you actually are. And that's terrifying. Luckily, (laughs) luckily there are a lot of, there are a lot of skills that people can teach you to help you do that. Like, you know, I don't think anyone can do that alone, you know, like, so finding, you know, good therapists, good AA sponsors, good meditation teachers, good authors, good friends, good, you know, like really having like a support system is, at least for me, it was just essential and integral. Right. That's amazing. And so do you feel like you reconnected with people throughout your life that you had to go back to, or do you feel like you've met like new, a new kind of social system or how did that play out? It both. Um, I mean, sometimes it's encountering people I've never actually met, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I've never met any of the 12th century Sufi poets, but their words have really inspired me. You know, um, I never met, Wittgenstein, his words have inspired me. Um, you know, I never met Bill Wilson, his and he's inspired me. So there, it's sometimes meeting people through books, and then also meeting people whose words can inspire you in ways that you wouldn't expect. Like I know that he's said a lot of unfortunate things, but like John Muir, who up until recently was sort of like the hallowed patron saint of the environmental movement. But he, regardless of the fact that he said some very, you know, some awful things in his life, he also said some really inspiring, beautiful things that have nothing to do with sobriety, but everything to do with the larger natural world and being reminded that, you know, there is this gigantic ancient world that we are a part of and and sort of expanding our perspective in that way can be just as therapeutic, at least for me, as actually just focusing on therapy. I just, it's like such a journey. And so I guess it all comes back to, so right now you wake up and, you know, I, you, you're here, you're present, you're, how do you see this transformation in your day-to-day life? Like, how do, do you feel clear do you feel what's the difference for you like right now i mean it's been what is it 12 years yeah i mean i've been sober for 12 years uh basically i mean i think that a, a huge part of being human and this is such a grand statement but a huge part of being human is understanding what it means to be human. And I've had debates, you know, with friends of mine who are religious teachers or spiritual leaders. My perspective is no one can transcend the human form. You know, the Buddha didn't No, like when you're human, you're human and you can have a better experience of humanity or a worse experience of humanity. But in this form we will never leave this form. 
Eventually we will when we die. But I would even go so far as to presumptuously say that our task, our, you know, maybe even our karma is to have an understanding of what it means to be human, not to avoid our humanity or transcend our humanity or ignore our humanity, but simply to live within it, you know, and to understand no matter who you are, there are going to be times when you're lonely and there are going to be times when you're anxious and there are going to be times when you're scared um, and times when you're stupid and times when you make mistakes. Like that's humanity. Um, I had a big debate about this with a friend of mine who was a Buddhist teacher. Uh, I said, why do you think, you know, in images of the Buddha, why is he always smiling or laughing? And she said, oh, because he's transcended humanity. And my perspective is like, no, he's smiling and laughing because he's saying to himself, yep, I'm still human. Like, <sighs> I, still go to, I still go to the bathroom. I still get mad at the guy who, you know, stands too close to me in line at the supermarket. I still, you know, like humanity is humanity. Like we, we don't, we don't transcend that. We sort of ideally make peace with it. And from that peace, hopefully we're able to be more compassionate to other people who are struggling with their own experience of what it means to be human. Yes. So that goes back to the question of what does choosing you mean? And what does it mean to you, Moby? How would you define it? I think it means basically, well, it means a lot of things. Um, but one would be looking at evidence, like looking at not not things in my not not having magical thinking around some pretty basic things. Meaning, like, you know, of course there's a part of me, and I assume a part of everybody, where like you want to eat chocolate cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And, you know, you want to be an addict. You want to drink and take drugs and sleep with people. And you want to be angry and selfish. And you want to, you know, like hoard and be greedy. But like these things don't work. And so there has to be that sort of like, I guess in maybe Buddhist terms, the Dharma of like, what, what's the basic stuff? Like, okay, if I get less than six or seven hours sleep a night, I'm unhappy and prone to getting sick. Um, if I don't eat a whole food, largely organic vegan diet, I get, you know, I feel sick and out of shape. If I don't go outside and walk around and exercise, I will get sick and feel sad. Like these basic things, you know, it's kind of like I, I'll say to people in, in AA, I'm like, you don't brush your teeth once and then be done with it. Hmm. Meaning you don't get sober or you don't become a vegan or you don't pursue enlightenment and have this one experience and you're done. Like you have to brush your teeth three times a day, ideally every day of your life. There's, Another expression which I love, which is before enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. And after enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. Yes. It's a daily so, practice. Yes. Yeah, and so it's that there's some basic aspects that we cannot transcend, at least until we die. And then I guess who knows what happens. Um, so it's choosing myself is that, that, you know, that basic I, I guess I'm maybe I'm misusing the term Dharma wrong, but that basic quotidian evidence-based approach to things. And then another aspect is being open to that which we do not know. 
and that which we do not understand. And it takes just a basic cursory look at existence to realize we don't understand anything. Right. You know, the more you um, know, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. I mean, just like get a microscope and look at a tomato cell under the microscope and you're like, okay, I can't even begin to understand a single cell in a tomato plant. Who am I to presumptuously claim knowledge of anything beyond that? So, you know, and I find great comfort in that. Like the universe is so more, so much more vast than we can even begin to comprehend. And somehow we get to be a part of it. And then hopefully at death, we get returned to that. And maybe we have a better understanding. Mm, I love that. So what would you say is the best part of choosing you for you? Uh, The best part is having the ability to not be tyrannized by compulsions. And what I mean by that is, you know, in my past, when I was anxious, I had no way out of the anxiety. When I was depressed, I had no way out of the depression. When I was mad, I had no way out of the anger. And now, you know, that idea that feelings are not facts, that, you know, that if I'm anxious, I can say, I can observe it. I can say, well, there's anxiety. That's interesting. It's unpleasant, but it's interesting. Where is it coming from? And do I want it to sort of go away? And if I want it to go away, here are the concrete steps I can take. So that is, it's really nice having, I wouldn't call it freedom, but more the freedom of options. Thank you so much for sharing and for your candor and your honesty and your beautiful everything. It's it's very profound. You've come so far, like you're so inspiring and beautiful. And I thank you for sharing everything here with us today. Oh, my pleasure. That's so fascinating to think about music that it never technically existed and that by definition is just air molecules moving around a little differently, that it was quite a nugget. And along with all of that inspiration that Moby shared, I hope you enjoyed it too. And if you are inspired and enjoy the Choose You Now podcast, please subscribe to the show, rate and review us on iTunes, and send us an email with questions, comments at chooseyounowpodcast at gmail.com. For nutrition services and more information, visit me at plantbaseddietitian.com. I invite you to choose yourself now, and I'm signing off with lots of leafy green love.